Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. So we're actually finishing off our series, uh, Our Great Hope. This is part four today. And I'm going to do a quick recap, and then we're going to go into the message for today. I, like I've mentioned pretty much every week, I hope you've come prepared with your ability to take notes. This is more of a history lesson. Uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's important for us as believers, as Christians, and I repeat myself over and over again in relations to this, that you know this information inside out, that it is imprinted on your heart, that it is relevant in your mind, and that it helps gird your faith as you go from step to step, strength by strength, grace to grace. We need to understand the whole concept of the resurrection, what resurrection is all about, and how it changes, affects, and empowers our life. So part one, we spoke about the afterlife. We discussed that for us as believers, heaven is not a destination that we arrive to once we die, though it is where we are found once our mortal bodies cease to exist. Once we say yes to Jesus, heaven is a very present reality here in this world for us here and now. That because of him, because of Christ, we have access to the heavenly realms and that as the church, our job is to transcend those realms. Part two, we talked about what resurrection actually was according to the ancient concept in which this text is written. And we said that and we teach that and the reality is that resurrection is complete bodily resurrection. It wasn't just like a ghost or a hallucination, but a bodily resurrection. And so the promise of resurrection is new body. And then part three, we took an investigative look at the Eastern narrative and what were some of the pushbacks in relation to Jesus himself being resurrected. And we discussed that history is the, the, the study of what isn't repeatable. It's a one-off event. And we discussed that science is the study of what is repeatable. And that if you were to look at the resurrection story, the Easter narrative, if you were to look at the evidence written according to the historical criteria, Jesus Christ lived, died, and resurrected. That is fact according to the way we document history. It has the, one of the highest accuracy rates. There is more written about the resurrection of Christ through first-hand witnesses and independent uh, um, authorship over eyewitness accounts than there is about Caesar crossing the Rubicon to take control of Rome. And we said at the end of the day, history says that it did happen. Science says that it could never have happened because it's not a repeatable event. And therefore, this is a matter of choice. Hence why faith is so important to us as Christians. Because if we could prove without a doubt that he was resurrected, where's the need for faith? If we could scientifically prove it, where's the need for faith? But in the same sense, if we scientifically prove that he was never resurrected, then we can all pack up and go home. And so that's what we ended on last week. And today we're doing part four. And I, and I alluded last week that we we're going to talk about one of the greatest evidence that Jesus Christ himself was resurrected was the growth and the expansion of Christianity in, in the, the known world or the, 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 the Near East and the Western civilization as it was known. Um, the growth of Christianity is evidence itself. We talked about Josephus discussing Jesus and Josephus not being a Christian himself but a scribe for history. He himself said that there was something special about Jesus because what Jesus taught about empowered the tribe of Christians named after Christ himself, and they are not yet extinct. 
And he was saying this because 100 years before Jesus and 100 years after Jesus, there were men that claimed to be the Messiah, but only Christ, only what he established through the resurrection became permanent. And this was an interesting time for history. Today we're going to talk about that, that specific thing. What made the spread of Christianity such a powerful movement? And I mean powerful. We talked that, you know, Paul died, the Apostle Paul likely died at the hands of Nero, the emperor. He likely was, he was a martyr at the hands of... We, we sort of know this, though it's never completely documented, because Nero was in power at the time. Nero hated Christians. He would light his, his, his afternoon or evening parties with Christians burning on crosses. His gardens were lit with them. He didn't like Christians. When Rome burnt down because his mismanagement, he started a rumor that the Christians deliberately burnt Rome down. This is Nero. So what happened around 65 AD? What changed from from that time where Paul is martyred, likely at the hands of Nero, to 313 AD when, when Emperor Constantine accepts the gospel as truth and becomes a Christian himself? What took place there? The spread of the church, the, the good news, the gospel. The term gospel is a Greek term. It's a Greek term that was used that it, it, essentially what would take place is that Athens or, or Greece as an empire or as a nation combined together through different forms of agreements, when they went to battle, they would fight and win wars. And Greece had many city-states, city-states being cities owned by Greece further away than the borders of their empire. But when when battles were fought and won, they would send evangelists to go tell the gospel that the battle has been fought, the battle has been won, And because you identify as Greek, you are now free. And so when we use the terminology of gospels and evangelists, what we are actually saying is that the battle has been fought by Christ, it has been won by Christ, and we, the heralds, the evangelists, are now telling each and every person, if you identify in Christ, you are now free. This is what's taking place between 33 AD after Christ's death all the way through to 313 AD when Constantine accepts the gospel, accepts Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And then we see 10 years later that Rome itself accepts and adopts Christianity as the official religion of the empire. Within 400 years from the execution of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, to all these moments through under the, the, the third century and fourth century, we see over half of the Roman Empire accept Jesus and begin to follow him. Over 60 million people. That's an incredible spread. I know we're like 60 million people. That's like three cities in China. That's not many. That's a phenomenal amount of people based on the world population at the time. Furthermore, within what is one of the most powerful empires at the time, if not the most powerful empire, in many ways. And so we're going to discuss today what happened, what took place. How did the church grow and spread so fast? What was their message and how was it empowered? And what can we learn from it today? How, how important is it today? Now, we discussed that their message wasn't Jesus loves you. He died for you. If you believe in him, you'll go to heaven and be saved. That wasn't their message. Their message was Jesus Christ was resurrected. And in his resurrection, everything that was said prior to him coming 
must be true. And because of that, everything he's doing now is empowered. There's a changing happening. There's a remaking happening. There's a new creation taking place. And that new creation includes you. This is their witness. This is the important message that they're bringing. Actually, this is the message we ourselves are meant to say first. He is risen, is what we're meant to declare in our life. The new creation is taking place. The old self has gone away. When we accept Christ, what begins to happen? A, a remaking, a new creation begins. The old man, the old women, old woman, should I say? It sounds weird, old woman. The old woman. Emma's like, Ben, just stop, move along. I can tell my wife's filter's kicking in for me. New creation's beginning. This was their message. I find it interesting. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to discuss, do you know, sometimes we sit here and go, why, do you ever ask this question yourself? Why did Jesus come then? Why didn't he come now? What would have happened if Jesus had come now? What would have happened if Caesar was alive now? Would he be totally blown away by automatic doors? Ever thought that? Just like he'd be like, what is this? And like you could trick him, right? He'd be like, I'm all powerful, Caesar. <laughs> like why, why did Jesus come when he did? What was taking place? You know, there's often this narrative in our head that, you know, and, and a lot of it comes from the fact that we look heavily at the Old Testament and we should, that, that God himself was preoccupied with what was happening in the Jewish state. That that's all his attention was on and everything else he was trying to protect them from. But that's not true. We know through the prophets, we know through the scripture that the Bible says that the governments of this world, past, present, and to come, rest upon his shoulders, which means God was just as interested in what was happening around Israel as much as what was happening inside Israel. Now, Israel was great because it was the nation that was going to bring forth, God's people was going to bring forth the Messiah. It was an incubation for what was to come. Of course, it was important to him, but so was the Gentile. And what we're going to look at here is that something takes place in the Near East Empire of Rome, in the Western Empire of Rome, that is actually quite specific in time and never happens again. And it makes sense right there, right now, why God decides it is time for his son to arrive. We read in Galatians 4.4, and Paul brings the attention here of the providential preparation that we see preceding Christ's time on earth. And he says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. The fullness of time. Paul is writing in Galatians here, something specific has taken place. It is a predestined, the fullness of time. It is ready for Christ to arrive. What took place? What was happening? Mark says this in Mark 1.15, and it emphasizes the coming Christ. It says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is what Mark writes, Mark 1.15. We've got to consider the events that precede the appearance of Christ on earth. And any sober student of history would have to acknowledge that there is truth in the statements that both Paul and Mark make here. There is truth. There is a fullness in time. Something takes place on earth that hasn't been seen before and hasn't been seen since. Not because man can't do it again, but like history, can't be repeated. Once done, once it's done. 
And we look at the Jewish concept, but there's two other great civilizations that actually are used for the coming Christ, and it's both Greece and it's both Rome. And it's really interesting. If we had more time, I actually have so many notes today that we're not going to go through it all because this would be like really long. You might be really interested. You might be like a history buff. I'm like, yeah, let's talk about every bit of it. But I'm going to do my best to filter through what I believe God wants us to know today. But we have to look at both Greek and Roman contributions, how they aided and how their advancements, what they brought, made way for Christ and made way for the gospel like no other civilization before. Their influence is still felt today. And so what we're going to do right now, we're going to go through the Roman contribution and then we're going to go through the Greek contribution and then we're going to speak why Paul is such an influential personality in the New Testament. He's not just some random bloke that Christ turns up to and goes, you'll do. Paul himself is the, the, the living embodiment of what was taking place, the coming together of Jewish culture, of Greek influence and of Roman authority. Paul is that. That is why he plays such a pivotal part in the mission of the gospel. Let's look at this. Roman contribution. One of the big contributions that Rome brings and why it makes it such a a, a specific moment in time is the political contributions. And I know what you're thinking, like, really? Politics? It's really important. The political contribution of Rome is outstanding. Their philosophy around politics is outstanding. Rome creates a unified identity. You've got to understand this. Other civilizations have not been able to do this the way that Rome does it. And when I mean they do it in a sense of pride. See, other civilizations, other empires existed, but people, even if you were a part of the Babylonian Empire or you're part of these pre-existing empires, you yourself didn't feel like you identified But Rome politically designed their system that if you were born even in the furthest reaches, a free man or free woman, you would be proud to identify as Roman because of their political system. Because they offered you universal identity. They gave you rights. Now, don't get me wrong. This didn't include the the slave population. These are free people. And we actually see later on that Rome few hundred years after Christ actually grants every free person citizenship, which is just unique. Roman courts were designed to bring universal law. The sense of solidarity of man within the empire created an environment, and I really do mean this, it's not been seen before, one that's going to be receptive of the Gospels. Why? Because the, the Gospels proclaim unity under Christ. We're just talking about a deeper context. But the mindset was ready there. Rome had already paved the way. Rome had already made it clear. It was a part of their political philosophy. We are united under one. We are Roman. Doesn't matter if you're a part of the Iberian Peninsula, you were Roman. Or the British Isles, you were Roman. Maybe you were part of Italy or the Mediterranean or the, or, or, or the Palestinian coast. You were Roman. And you had rights. And we look at Paul. Paul was born in the Middle East, but he was born a Roman citizen. He had rights, and he uses that. We see in the New Testament when he's charged or when he's held without cause, he simply says, how are you going to explain to the authorities your treatment of a Roman citizen? 
And we all know what happens. They all freak out. He's Roman. There was, there was a political philosophy around Rome that made way for the gospel. Number two, infrastructure. Rome did something that was really interesting. Rome was very concerned with building things, like infrastructure. Rome actually cleared out most of the piracy in the Mediterranean. It built roads, like extensive road networks, like never seen before in any empire. Beautiful roads. It brought peace within the boundaries of its empire. It made sure that you could pass from one major city to the next as quick as possible in the empire. Infrastructure. They built mighty bridges so that you didn't have to go the long way around a river but have the direct route. Infrastructure was important to the Romans. See, before, prior to the Roman um, you know, infrastructure boom, the ancient world was divided into small city-states. They were divided into these jealous units that were very small and protected only what they had. And it was difficult to travel from one city-state to another. Things would be hindered. Travel was slow. You were likely to be injured, hurt, or killed. But Rome changed all that. When, when Rome absorbed everything, they created this road and bridge and sea network that allowed you to move freely in peace. This is important because the gospel now had movement. You've got to understand, never before can a philosophy move as quickly as it could in Rome. It wasn't just Christianity either, by the way. Other things moved. But infrastructure, Rome brought infrastructure. Number three, Rome brought a military presence like never before. It was very regimented. It was disciplined. It was systemized. And it was intelligent. They brought, uh, you know, generals, they brought all their different levels and ranks of authority and officers, and they put amongst them provincials that would help spread Roman ideals throughout the ancient world. The military was important. It was the precipice of change. Wherever the Roman military went, change followed. The cool thing is, is that it's, it's clearly stated in history that the Gospels actually changed the heart and hearts of many of these provincials in charge of large portions of the army. They themselves become Christians, and the spread of the Gospels even helped and, and was, was propagated through the ranks of the Roman Empire. Their military played a massive role. Wherever Rome went, its military went, and wherever its military went, changed happened. And the last thing, Roman conquest. This sounds weird, but wherever Rome went, they wiped out a lot of what they fought against. And in doing so, they create this vacuum. And I'm not talking like a vacuum of like, you know, a physical vacuum. I'm talking about a identity vacuum. So what would take place is a lot of these, these societies, a lot of these tribes, a lot of these nations, once defeated, realized that the gods that they worshipped couldn't protect them because Rome absolutely wiped them out. And so they no longer believe in what they did, but they don't know what to hold on to, and there's now this vacuum there. And Rome doesn't actually give them a reasonable substitute. Rome doesn't do that. They have their gods, they have their polytheistic ideas, but at the end of the day, they themselves don't have a reasonable response, and so there's this vacuum. So what has Rome done? Rome has done something that no other civilization has done before. It has created the ability for something like the gospel to spread faster and further than ever before. Let's turn to Greece. 
Greece did what Rome wished they could do. See, great as the preparations uh, by Rome you know, were in regards to helping Christianity, it was overshadowed by the intellectual environment that Greece and Greek-minded uh, philosophers provided. See, the city of Rome was associated with, with Christianity's political environment, but it was Athens that helps provide an intellectual environment that actually aided the propagation of the gospel. Does that make sense, everyone? Cool. You can rewatch it, Google the word, it's all good. See, the practical Romans, they may have built good roads, mighty bridges, fine public buildings, but the Greeks, well, they reared lofty edifices of the mind. They, were just, they, they made pathways in the brain, to put it in a simple term. They made philosophies that weren't concerned with the things necessarily of the physical realm, but of the intellectual one. And I find it interesting that when we look at Greece, when we look at its contribution to the gospel, even to the world, it's quite astounding that Greece infrastructure didn't last as long as Roman infrastructure, but Greek cultural intellectual influences still plague our world today. And I say plague because they have what I believe is an ungodly mannerism towards them that actually robs us of, that, of what God is trying to teach us. But in, in Greek philosophy, in the lack of being able to answer certain questions, they actually open the mind for the gospel. It's funny how sometimes we get into conversations with people, right? And they'll say things that will bring doubt or they'll, they'll have an idea that challenges our idea or they'll say something that seems convincing and we can freak out or we can respond out of, out of doubt or out of a lack of understanding. But one thing we really do need to take away is that they're always going to fall painfully short without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. This is a vacuum in every human's life. You can rely on it. You can build your understanding on the fact that no matter how high a lofty thought we come up with, it will pale into insignificance without the presence of God in our life. That's just the truth. That's what we know. See, under Greek influence, the whole plain rural culture of the early Roman Republic gave way to this intellectual culture of the empire. See, Rome and Latin and what they spoke was an important language, but it wasn't the intellectual language. And as we see here, a universal gospel was need of a universal language. You see, just as English right now is the modern universal language and Latin was the universal language of the scholarly academics of the medieval ages, Greek was the language of the intellectual, the modern universal language at their time. Everyone spoke Greek. See, you can speak Mandarin and speak English. You can speak American and speak English. <laughs> English is the universal language. Back then, speaking Greek was the universal language. See, it's interesting how we have one empire that has opened up the physical route for the gospel to spread, and the other empire had opened up the philosophical route for the gospel to spread and then we see not an empire at all in the Jewish culture open up the heavenly route for the gospel to proceed. 
This is a beautiful coming together, not a reflection of chance, but of divine authority and of appointment. Only God could work through the centuries, through multiple cultures, to bring not just one culture, but multiple into partnership, even if they didn't realize it, so that the good news of freedom could echo through this world. Greek philosophy, and we talked about this, it prepared for the coming of Christianity by destroying older religion. Do you know we talk about, you know what? God can use anything for the extension of his kingdom. He really does. He really does. He uses what, you know, if I think right now, if someone came along and was speaking Greek philosophy and was challenging things, you know, often I see Christians rear up and they get real upset. But the problem is, is that often in their own, and humanity in its own heights of its own thought actually cannibalize themselves. They actually do the work of tearing down things that have stood in their way to accept God. They just don't realize, we don't realize we're doing it. And this is the same thing. See, Greek philosophy got rid of older religion. There was a turning away from the rationally unintelligible polytheistic religion towards philosophy. Simply this. They stopped believing in the pantheon of gods and started putting their trust in philosophy. But by the time we see the, the, the advent of Christ and the coming Christianity, the, the decline of philosophy had already begun. The lofty heights of Plato had already begun to decay. Those self-centered individual, individual, let me see this right. Anyway. I can't even say the word. Help me out when you're by yourself. Individualistic. There we go. Thank you, Emma. Shaking your head. Help me. Your individualistic thoughts. Oh, man. This is when you have too many words in your head. Those self... I look at the world today and think, you know what? To think that those self-centered thoughts have gone is but a lie. It still plagues the world today. It still echoes. That's what I said. These Greek philosophies still echo through the world today. Actually, I actually believe you look at Christianity, we should see changes in technology as another way of God pushing the gospel to further realms. I should see, and I think you should see, that when people challenge the mindset and and the philosophy, if we were to use that term of Christ, the Christian ideology of the resurrection, watch as it makes way for freedom. Because nothing stands up against it. That's just the truth. That's our present reality. Stoicism or Epicureanisms, these things don't last anymore. People trying to attain perfection in their own strength whilst just looking after themselves. All these things killed off older religion, but then cannibalized themselves, but left a void. And the reason they cannibalized themselves is philosophy still didn't fix the issue of spirituality. It didn't give you a relationship with the divine creator. There was something missing. People turned away. They just didn't know where to turn to. And then all of a sudden, in the void of this, Jesus turns up. Christianity is born. This is not just chance timing. There's that whole understanding that that human beings, we're not bulletproof, right? Can kill a human being. But an ideology, a belief system, is completely bulletproof. In many ways, the more you try to remove it through violence, and this is especially true for Christianity, 
the more it spreads. And because that's how vacuums work. You've actually got to find what fills the vacuum for that vacuum to stop having its effect on things. And what we start to see here is, like I said, through the Roman expansion, through its infrastructure, military, its political philosophies, through its, its conquest, and through the Greeks' desire for higher mind, for their desire for intellectual, academic heights, they both make way for but the smallest of all nations, the Jews, Israel, to just fit that vacuum perfectly in coming out with the Messiah. Isn't that a beautiful narrative? Don't you think that's a beautiful picture? I find that exciting. As a believer today, I find it exciting because all of a sudden, when I read Isaiah 9, 6, it says, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. Sounds like Christmas. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isn't that interesting that Isaiah the prophet prophesies the coming Christ and government will rise on his, will rest on his shoulders. But look what they deal with. Wonderful counselor. What a void to be filled. Mighty God. Nothing more mighty than God. Tell that to a Roman. Everlasting father. Both these cultures wanted to find a way to have their legacy last forever. Prince of peace. Brings peace through love and through restoration. This is what's been echoed through time. And both Greek and Roman empires have fallen, but what has stood longer than any other, if we were to use the term empire, any other kingdom, 2,000 plus years strong, not yet extinct, challenged by every tribe, tongue and nation, yet still standing. It is Christ, the resurrected one. Isn't that, doesn't that stir something in you? Doesn't that make you think, wow, Man, I'm so happy that my parents actually brought me to kids' uh, church when I was younger. They got me on the right track early. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I'm so happy that God pulled me out of darkness into light. Maybe you're thinking, I'm so happy my friend invited me here. Maybe you think, I'm so happy that I've heard the truth because the truth is freedom. And this is the truth. As much as we can over-spiritualize things, as much as we can make it sound granola, all nut and fruit and flakes, as, as much as we can do that, there is deep anchors in history. There is deep anchors in, in philosophy. There is deep timing that takes place that only God, the author, the creator of heaven and earth, could orchestrate. And if you try to prove it wrong, you're only going to find him. That's the beauty of it. The only way you can reject this is willful blindness. And the Bible tells us that can only happen if you choose to invest in pride. And rebellion. Wisdom itself, the Bible tells us in Psalms, stands in the courtyard and makes known. It's inescapable. The gospel is inescapable. So it brings us to the question okay, we've now got the physical infrastructure, we've got the intellectual pathway, and we have the access to heaven. What did the early Christian need to do what they did? And it's simply this. Holy Spirit. And that's what we hear take place at Pentecost. Holy Spirit arrives, lights the flame, the church is born, and something happens. A supernatural empowerment. Those vessels that were just dust, clay, all of a sudden became 
the vessels of heaven and hope. And they understood this. It wasn't something they took lightly. See, the Holy Spirit sent by the Father through the Son continues as it did then, as he did then to dwell in the church, inspiring, empowering her to take the mission in accordance with the commandments and mandate of Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The Holy Spirit came to empower us to do that. That's why they could face Nero. That's why they could go to the cross because the resurrection power changed their perspective. The Holy Spirit empowered a heavenly one, not one to come, but one is apparent now. They understood they were part of the remaking process. We look at a world today and we're like, it's dying, it's decaying, it's toxic, it's broken. Can't wait to get to heaven. They looked at the very same world that was dying, that was hurting, that was decaying. And they said, I can't wait to help resurrect it. It's a different mindset, isn't it? It's, it's an exciting one. The Holy Spirit stirred in them this, this deep desire to preach, a deep desire to see converts, a deep desire to see and work miracles. And they did. It's not that they just desired, they did. And the cool part is, is that that's the same covenant, it's the same promise, it's the same authority that we have today. The only problem is, do you know how you rob yourself of that? Make it about you. Church is like, where's the power of the church today? Oh, it's in trouble because we make it about us. You come to church, you get on the worship team, make it about God. But to be honest, to be truthful, to be transparent, there has been times that I've come to church and I've still made it about me. I didn't like this. I didn't like that. I prefer this. That person smelt funny. They invaded my bubble. Like we make it about us. How did I look? Was my shoes clean? Was my, my shirt ironed? If you marry well... All of those things happen really magically. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit. You don't make it about you. You've got to make it about the message of resurrection. I mean, I can't stress this enough. I'm going to harp on this forever now. Like, I've studied this. I've had to go through seminary for this. I, I get it. But even in, in, in re-going through this to preach this series, something has awakened in me and has, it started to permeate through everything I think and it's the lens of resurrection and it's, whoa, how much of this stuff do we make about ourselves? How much does Avant Life reflect how good Pastor Ben is? Now, we know that's not the truth. But what, we, what I want you to understand is I want people to come in here and go, wow, I felt resurrection power. I felt the Holy Spirit when I walked into an Avant Life church. Not our pastor Ben preaches pretty well and the worship leader is pretty good looking. Back off. This is the Holy Spirit that brought people and guided them to the apostles to be taught to be brought together in communal living, to pray together, the breaking of bread. It's the same Holy Spirit that pulled Stephen out and his companions and appointed them. It's the same Holy Spirit that filled them with a zealous ministry. It's the same Holy Spirit that gave witness to them. And because of it, their faith shed their blood. Oh, it's interesting now, hey? It's all fun when it's on the up. 
But when it's a little bit rough and on the down, like, do we really want to talk about it? It's the same Holy Spirit that saw Paul, a fanatical Jew, radically saved, transformed. Same Holy Spirit that chose and made him into a worthy instrument for the preaching of the good news to the Gentiles. And ask the worship team to come. I said this before, Paul's an incredible character in the New Testament, right? He, he sort of personifies what I've been talking about, the coming together of all these different things that Christ himself had orchestrated, the Roman, the Greek, the Jew. He writes something incredible about the early church. He says this, I'm going to paraphrase it and then we're going to read it. He essentially says this, that, during persecution, especially during persecution, the Holy, Holy Spirit sustained the early church and sustains you as a believer and transforms the persecution into meaningful, powerful expansion of the good news. I'm going to say that again in an even simpler form. Our persecution equals a quicker spread of the gospel. Simple. Isn't it funny how quickly we run from persecution? We hide from it. We try to water it down. We try to make ourselves invisible to the world. Like you've got to come out as a Christian now, right? And then you feared you're going to be like ostracized or singled out. And a lot of this is real and some of it's not real. Either way... We still treat it as, I hope I can keep my faith private so I can live whatever life I want publicly. Can I be frank with you? That is bordering on the line of rejecting Christ. He did not come to be hidden, but just like a city on the hill made known. He did not be a saviour for you so you could hide him under a basket but put him on a lampstand. To think that Christ is but a private part of your life is borderline pre-second fire Peter. What I mean by that is when they said, hey, weren't you with him? Privately he was like, yeah. But publicly he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. We read in Acts 8, 1 to 3. I'll read it to you. Saul approved of his execution. He's talking about Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him, but Saul was raving the church, so ravaging the church and entering the house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts 12 says this, verse 1 to 9. About the time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Verse 4 says this, and when he had been seized, so when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. 
So Peter was kept in prison by earnest prayer for him. Sorry, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Verse 6 says this. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And the sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him. Imagine that moment. And the light shone in his cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Hey, bud, wake up. Get up quickly. It's good advice. The chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put your sandals on. We're going to church. He did so and he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Now, I was joking when he said we're going to church, but that's exactly where Peter is led. Peter is led to the church where people have been praying for him and they freak out. Because he's like, whoa, this is real. And they're like, whoa, you're real. But isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit is stirring It doesn't delineate between Peter's miraculous escape and the death of James, the brother of John. You see, in the midst of persecution, the Holy Spirit is known. The Holy Spirit is found and the early church understands this. I love this. We we read through the first part of Acts what took place to the early church, the early Christians, and it's horrendous and it's horrific. But Acts 12, there's a turning that takes place. 12.24, it says these simple words, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Increased and multiplied. Resurrection power increases and multiplies. You would have heard the term a lot, resurrection power. If you grew up in the church, if you're new to the church, maybe this is a new thought to you, but... Resurrection power is the work of God in the life to come and it reaches down into our present and it brings us into unison, unity with him, into relationship with him. This is what I love and if I don't know if you've ever had a thought about this, but when Jesus ascended after being raised for the first time ever, I mean for the first time ever, a piece of earth entered heaven. Isn't that a powerful image? For the first time ever when Jesus, and, we, and I tell you guys this all the time, when Jesus stepped down into earth and took on the form of man, that wasn't temporary. That was a permanent coming together. He is forever 100% man and 100% God. This was the beautiful moment of sacrifice we talk about. And so when he goes back into heaven, he takes earth with him. But this is a cool thing. He leaves a part of heaven here on earth. And in that moment, for the first time, heaven and earth are bound as one to the all-conquering Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Resurrection power is in work or is working in us now. We experience the effects when we're born again. We experience the effects when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit and baptized in the gifts. Paul prays the same power for Christians when he writes the epistles to the Ephesians. And in Ephesians 1, 16 to 20, he says this. 
He says, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the, work, the working of his great might? That he might, sorry, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the the right hand in the heavenly places. Do you know what I love about this? Is that he goes through all these different things that we are to inherit, what we are to operate in. And then finally he says it's all made possible because Christ was resurrected and seated on high. He was physically resurrected and seated on high. It's not he was a ghost, he was a hallucination. He was saying to the early church, this is what empowered them. This is what led them to their deaths, willfully knowing that. They were going to the cross or they were going to the the, the noose or they were going to the burning stake because Jesus Christ who died for them was resurrected and seated on high and they themselves through their inheritance in Him will be resurrected and seated on high with Him. This is not just a fairy tale. This is our inheritance. This is what is to come for us. This is our great hope as believers. And so when we see Paul write in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the power of God, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Gentile, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Do you know why Paul writes this? He's writing to the Romans. The spread of the church is happening already. People are dying for the good, the, the good news already. Blood is being spilt, but the persecution is only fanning the flames lit at Pentecost. The church is alive and well. And on the backs of the martyrs, the church is beginning to grow in influence and power. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the saving power of God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's universally significant. It doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, you're a Jew or Gentile, free or slave. It did what philosophy and the Romans could never do. And it, it eroded away those old classes and said, under Christ, we are made new. We are one. We are the body of Christ. This is what stirred in them. This is what so many of us have lost. And this is what God is asking for us to regain again. Stop going to your job and living as if the gospel exists for you. Stop going to your workplace and talk to your colleagues as if they don't mean anything. They have an internal significance. The gospel says it. You've been commanded to. And to reject it by not doing what it's asked you to do is failing in your duty as a follower of Christ. And maybe some of us need to sit with Jesus today and have our very own Peter moment where he says, hey, do you love me? And you can say, I do. He says, feed my sheep. You can say, okay, I can do that. Can you? And he says, do you love me? Maybe you need your three-peat redemption moment in Jesus because at the end of the day, it's the resurrection that stirred these amazing people. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And this is what I love is that, you know, Martin Luther writes about this and he says that when he first looked at the righteousness of God and what was asked of us, he thought to himself, we can never achieve this. Why would God give us something we can't achieve? And then he has this realisation on his deathbed and it's beautiful when he realises that the righteousness of God that he demands from us, he provides for us in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel 
And I love when he says, because it's confirmed by Scripture. He says that the righteous shall live by faith. This is a reference to Habakkuk. You need to know this right now. He says, because God said it. Not because Paul said it, because God said it. Would you stand with me right now? Because we're going to go back into worship. And I want you to understand we are only gearing up for what God wants to do at Avant Life Church across the, the, the nation of Canada and the globe. But He's calling. He doesn't need thousands of people. He needs individuals to have the, res- the, the revelation of resurrection. Yes, lots of things that the world is doing right now doesn't align with what God tells us we should do. But don't look to Hollywood for salvation. Don't look to the government for salvation. They can't figure out where to put a $500 million program. Why do we look to the things that the Bible says rest on His shoulders? Yes, our belief, what we understand, the goodness of God and what He preaches in and through His gospel and beyond does not align with the world because he says, hey, you're no longer of the world. You're just in it. You're no longer a citizen of earth. You're a citizen of heaven. You're now an ambassador, which means you reflect what the sending kingdom says is right. You don't go there to accept what the present kingdom tells you is right. As we go into worship right now, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, if you identify as that, can I ask you to pray a really powerful prayer? Simply this, send me, I'll go. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.